In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There is perhaps no symbol more widely known than that of the rainbow. From prayer flags that flutter in the Himalayan foothills of Nepal to the gay pride flag that adorns the wall of the Unitarian Church down the street, the rainbow colors are used around the globe. Though what they are a symbol of clearly differs depending on the context. Well, this morning, I want us to think about the original rainbow, the one we still see in the sky after a storm. It is a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness, a symbol of his promise that never again will there be a flood that will destroy the earth. I don't know about you, but whenever I see a rainbow, I usually think of Noah's Ark. And when I think of Noah's Ark, I tend to think of children sitting in a Sunday school room, learning about the animals going in two by two. It's a very lovely picture. But um, if I pulled out uh, one of these, you might have a rather different view about the bow in the sky. This is a serious weapon. This bow, armed with an appropriate arrow and operated by someone other than me, could kill you. (laughs) Well, this morning, I want to shake up any romantic views of the rainbow that you might have. And I want you to consider that the rainbow could actually be represented by one of these. The Hebrew term um, used for the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9 is the term usually used for the bow of a warrior. How pointed then is this sign that God gave Noah And the whole world in the rainbow. Verse 13, we read, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The hostility is over. God hangs up his bow. God calls a ceasefire. Enough already. The very weapon of God's war against the world with the water becomes transformed into a delight to behold in the form of a rainbow. There are only um, three other references to the rainbow in the Bible. One is in Ezekiel and the other two are in Revelation. And in two of those verses, the rainbow is a part of the brilliant radiance that surrounds God. But in Revelation chapter 10... Verse 1, the picture is of a strong angel robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. He is a warrior angel speaking the judgment of God. I realize that it's not considered politically correct to talk about God's judgment in some circles. Maybe that's because we prefer to believe in a tame God and angels that play celestial harp seated on uh, fluffy white clouds. But if you were here for our Christmas Eve midnight mass, you would have seen a rather formidable uh, array of angels uh, carrying a veritable arsenal of fearsome weapons. If you look in most children's uh, Bibles today at the pictures of Noah's flood, 
you will likely see smiling giraffes and happy-faced monkeys eagerly climbing into the ark, with Mr. and Mrs. Noah waving cheerily from one of the upper decks. But the story of the flood is not a story of a Sunday school outing with a picnic on a boat. It is the story of great wickedness and rebellion against God and the dire consequences of that that led to God judging the world and purging it of evil. It's actually a very grim and gruesome story. And yet, in that account of the flood, there is both judgment and grace. While God could have destroyed the whole world, he did not. Instead, he saved Noah and his family to give them a second chance and a clean start. Those that listened and responded to God's call to repentance through Noah were saved. Those who did not perished. This is the age-old message. God created the world and it was good. Mankind rebelled against God and spoiled it. Indeed, such was the wickedness in the days of Noah that God regretted having made man in the first place, hence his judgment in bringing the flood. And yet, alongside God's righteous anger and wrath, we also encounter his great mercy. One of the great Lenten refrains is repent, return to the Lord. And God says this to us time and time again out of his mercy and his love. But hear this. God's I love you does not mean that he's a soft touch. It does not mean that he's an enabler who doesn't care about evil. You know, some folks have a hard time with the notion of God being omnipotent, that is all-powerful, on the one hand, and his being a God of love on the other. So the argument goes, if God is a loving God, then surely he would want to remove all suffering from the world. And if God is an all-powerful God, then he would do it. But seeing as we still suffer, either God is not a loving God or he's not a powerful God. But the story that is revealed to us in Scripture puts these two truths about God together in a very different way. Because God is a loving God, he desires that none should perish. And so we see how he reaches out again and again and again that all might be saved. He preached salvation through the Spirit of Christ through Noah. Jesus, at his baptism, preached repentance. God is not sitting absently, passively waiting to blast us. On the contrary, God is actively involved in wooing us and pursuing us, urging and longing that all should turn from their sin and come home to him and receive his love and his mercy. Yes, God is a great God of love. And he is also omnipotent. He is holy. And he cannot and will not tolerate evil. Such is his holiness and righteousness that he must rid the world of evil. And so in his 
Holy, righteous, pure, powerfulness. He is the judge of the world. And Jesus will one day return as that righteous judge. You see, when it's all about me, then omnipotent and benevolent means that God is all-powerful to take away my suffering, relieve my pain, and make me happy. But when it's all about God, then omnipotent and benevolent means that God is all-powerful to save us from evil, all-powerful to make right that which is spoiled, and all-loving to invite you and me to receive forgiveness. And achieving that is not done by simply waving away suffering. Indeed, the way that God does this is by taking the suffering that is rightfully ours and bearing it himself for us. When um, we think of the rainbow as being like the bow that is a weapon, we see something else that is rather startling. The rainbow sign of the covenant demonstrates that while God's anger against all that is evil is undiminished, the direction that the bow is pointing is not down on his people or on the world, but it is up, pointing to the very heart of God. And we see in our epistle reading this morning, it is God himself whose heart is pierced by his own righteous anger for our sake. Peter writes, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see that? In the flood, there is God's judgment on the world. In Christ, there is God's holy and righteous judgment on Jesus for us. Not vicariously done to somebody else. This is God self-substituting himself for us, taking that punishment. Jesus paid the price. He paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And that cross is the other great symbol, which, like the rainbow, has somehow become tamed from an instrument of torture and of inflicting death to an item of jewelry. In this letter, Peter then immediately makes a reference back to Noah. After telling us that Christ was made alive in the spirit, he says, in which, that is, in the spirit, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few were saved. Well, there are easier verses in the Bible. Um, This is clearly difficult to understand. But I think what Peter is saying is that those who lived at the time of Noah, those who are living lives of total depravity, total disobedience to God, were not somehow innocent ignorant victims of the flood. Why? Because Christ in spirit, remember the eternal word was there in the beginning and forever. Christ had preached to them through Noah while the ark was being built. Those people alive then, but now dead, are being referred to here by Peter as 
spirits in prison, for that's where they are now. But they heard the message, and they chose to scoff and ignore it. Peter then draws this parallel between those whom God saved through the floodwaters with those whom God now saves through the waters of baptism. And I want to take a minute or two to think about this. Peter says in verse 21, And baptism, which this, that is the flood, prefigured, now saves you. The waters of baptism can in one sense be likened to the waters of the flood. The imagery of drowning is one aspect of the imagery that we have in baptism. Of dying to self and sin and like being buried in the flood and yet being rescued and saved by God and raised a new life. We all deserve the penalty that Christ bore for us. Yet God in his grace and mercy has provided a means for our escape from that penalty. And so coming up out of the waters of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood. The waters of God's judgment on sin. And we emerge to a new life in Christ. As Noah fled into the ark, so we flee to Christ. And in him we escape final judgment. Now, many of you probably know this already, but the church has often been likened to an ark. The church spiritually is the body of Christ. He is our salvation. He is our deliverance and we find our safety in him. But the church building architecturally also reminds us of the ark. The part of the church that you are sitting in is called what? The nave. And that word comes from the Latin navis, meaning ship. The word navy also comes from that root, as indeed the, does the color navy. Did you know that? Navy blue comes from this? Do you know, want to know why? I'm going to tell you. Because <laughs> navy blue is the color, or was the color, of the British Royal Navy. thought you'd like that. <laughs> but if you look up at the ceiling... Uh, with its open rafters, you can see that it bears some resemblance to the shape of the hull of a boat. If that's helpful, great. If not, don't worry about it. We'll move on. But note how it is that Peter says we are saved by baptism, not merely by an outward washing, an outward sprinkling or immersing or however you do it, not by a mere physical act. For the importance of baptism is in what Peter describes as the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, a request that our consciences can be dealt with by God through his forgiveness. Do you have a clear conscience? When God gives you a clear conscience, you have the assurance that every sin you have committed has been forgiven. And that you are in a right relationship with God. Ultimately, that is only possible through Christ, through what he achieved for us on the cross. And this desire for a clear conscience that Peter speaks of is a desire that I'm sure many of us have had or perhaps continue to have. So very often, people's lives are weighed down by nagging consciences, by guilt, and by shame. And contrary to popular belief, guilt 
is not necessarily an inappropriate feeling to have. Our consciences are a powerful tool that God can use. Sometimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. And Jesus came to deal with that, not to mask it or cover it over, but to free us from guilt by dealing with the causes of our guilt. Jesus came to forgive us. And when we experience forgiveness from God, we can know tremendous freedom and a tremendous release from guilt. Now, of course, each and every one of us can and will continue to face temptations. You know, if you'd read on a couple of verses in Genesis, after the great victory at the end of the flood, and the rainbow's there declaring God's faithfulness, where do we find Noah? We find him with his pants down, drunk in a heap. It's not a pretty sight. And you know, as we think of the blessings that we have received um, as a parish, you know, in, in many quarters, we're, we're regarded as one of the success stories in our diocese. We've a growing congregation. We've planted a church. We've added another service. We have a great choir. We have, thank you, choir. We have great contemporary worship. And on and on we could go. Well, look out. Just a few paragraphs further on from the passage we read from Peter's letter, he gives this warning. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Elsewhere, Paul says, if you think you are standing, look out, lest you fall. And Peter exhorts us to be self-controlled and alert. Resist him, he says. Standing, resist the devil, that is. Standing firm in the faith. Jesus himself encountered the cunning schemes and temptations of the devil. The baptism of Jesus that was briefly described in our gospel reading this morning from Mark is one of those great high points of Jesus' ministry. This wonderful description of the heavens being torn apart. And the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And yet immediately after that, what do we see? Is it great miracles and healings? Is it the crowds flocking to worship Jesus and follow him? No. We see Jesus out there in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Following Jesus, responding to his sacrificial love, is not about finding a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Becoming a Christian is not a recipe for a problem-free life. To follow Jesus, yes, it's, it's free in that God does it all. He pays the price. There's nothing we can do to contribute to it. But it's also very costly. We live in a world where God's grace is neither applauded nor welcomed. And we live in a world where there is a spiritual battle raging between good and evil. Which, if we follow Christ, we will inevitably be caught into. In this context, we survive and thrive only by being obedient to God's will. By drawing on the spiritual resources that he provides for us in worship, in fellowship, in prayer, through word and sacrament. 
If we are indeed to keep a holy Lent, as many of us were exhorted to do this past Ash Wednesday, then these are the tools that we need to employ. And our scriptures today remind us of God's great love and faithfulness in the rainbow, in baptism, and supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You know, it's possible, I don't know, it is possible that some here may be like those who heard Noah's warnings but failed to respond. Or who heard Jesus' call to repent but did not. The invitation of our holy and just, all-powerful, yet loving, merciful and gracious God is still today, repent. Come home. I love you. God's desire is that none should perish. Though all were invited, no one was compelled into the ark. You can leave here this morning without turning to God. You can carry on living your life on your own terms and you can ignore God's call. Or you can respond. And I would like to finish this morning by giving you the opportunity at the start of this season of Lent to return to the Lord. And if you would like to respond to God today for the first time or maybe after being distant from him for a season, then I invite you in the quietness of your own heart to pray this prayer with me. Would you just bow your heads as we sit and I'll lead us in this prayer. Lord, I confess my sin, my selfishness, my faithlessness. Please save me from the floodwaters of all that spoil and stain and would overwhelm me. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for hanging up your bow of destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment that I deserve. Holy Spirit, Please come into my life and fill me with your life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just before I sit down, if you prayed that prayer today, I invite you to tell someone. When you come forward for communion, if you'd like to, you're willing to, just, just raise a hand like that. Nothing dr- dramatic. And let the person serving you bread today know. I'd also love the opportunity to speak with you if you'd like to, or perhaps you'd like to ask one of the prayer ministers to pray for you at that time in our service. Thank you.